Hi, this is Steve Hargadon. Welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, April 14, 2011, and our special guest tonight is Jerry Mintz. Jerry, thanks so much for being here. Well, it's uh, nice being here so far. That's <laughs> <laughs> good. Now, as those of you in the room will notice there was a little bit of a lag there, and for some of you, the audio slowed down. For some reason, we do seem to have a little bit of a slow connection tonight, so uh, we appreciate your patience with us. Uh, Future of Education uh, interview series uh, kicks up again next week with David Shank on his really fascinating book called The Genius in All of Us. Uh, well worth the time, I think. It uh, should be very much fun. Uh, Thursday, Barry Schwartz is going to talk about his book, The Paradox of Choice. On April 26, uh, Hugh McGuire will talk about LibriVox. If you don't know LibriVox, it's the uh, free public domain recording program that allows you to download um, group-created public recordings of classic books. Really fun and um, well worth uh, learning more about. Then Pam Moran and Iris Solkall, Dale Stevens on his very popular on college, and lots more coming up, of course. Uh, fun to see Sir Ken Robinson coming back. Uh, Larry Ferlazzo on his book, Helping Students Motivate Themselves, um, and lots, lots more. If you've missed the show, they are all recorded, uh, both in full Illuminate versions and in MP3 in a podcast format. Uh, we heard uh, earlier this week from Carl Speak on his book, Be Your Own Brand. Uh, that was really interesting, and I loved the language he uses about helping other people in, in the world of the Internet where you become known for what you do. Uh, lots of food for thought there. Then Vernon Jean Porter before that on future searches. Rick Hess on, on school reform. Uh, they're all up there. We hope there's something that is worth listening for to you. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is participative. You can use a variety of functions here. The first thing I want to encourage you to do is to go up to view layouts and switch to the wide layout. View layouts, switch to the wide layout. It will make it a little bit easier to see the chat. Um, at the bottom of the participant window, you have the ability to uh, communicate uh, through these emoticons, a smiling face, a clapping hand. As well, there's a larger icon with a hand and a green up arrow that lets you raise your hand. And I can see there's a little bit of a slowdown again in the um, in the audio here. So um, we appreciate your patience tonight. Not quite sure why that's happening. Okay, we're going to give you the first chance to actively participate. To the left of the map is our set of icons, one of which is a wand with a red star at the end. If you click on that and then click on the map, you can let us know where you're listening from. Please feel free to shout it out in the chat as well. Tell us what time it is, especially who's ever in China and maybe in the Philippines there. Derek, are you making fun of me shouting? Uh, yeah, I couldn't figure out how to do mine. Or do you click on the star and then drag it, it and over, or do you click on click it again. and put it where you are? Oh, I see. Okay. Okay, Bill, thanks for, for being up early for us in Manila. Again, it's always fun to have uh, listeners from around the world. We sure appreciate that. And those of you listening to the recording, thanks so much for joining us. So, Jerry, in the pre-show chat, I told you that uh, your book, No Homework and Recess All Day, was kind of like a little bit of a golden find for me. When I ordered it, I didn't realize that it was really going to be this sort of deep mm -hmm. treatise on uh, democracy and education. Um, but my copy is now underlined and earmarked um, uh, throughout the whole book. Um, would you tell the story of your grandfather's impact on you and then sort of how that's related to your vision of uh, school over the years? Okay, Steve. Well, uh, I guess, you know, I've, I'm often asked, you know, how, how I got started in this approach to learner-centered education. And uh, when I really thought about it, I would go back to, you know, times when I started uh, democratic recreation centers and schools and so on when I was pretty young. 
and then I went back further and realized that it really came from my relationship with my grandfather that uh, every uh, week or two my family would travel into Boston. I lived in Worcester, Massachusetts, and we would see my grandparents. Now, my grandfather was a lawyer, sometimes a judge. He was also um, an expert on Shakespeare. For example, he wrote something called After the Curtain Falls, which is extra acts of Shakespearean plays in iambic pentameter. And they were performed all over Europe and some parts of the United States. And uh, he used to write epigrams. And every day, the Boston paper would have one of his epigrams above the headline. Now, uh, so he kind of, he was a real Renaissance man. And, but what he would do is when I would visit, he would sit down with me and would just be the two of us. And he'd say, OK, what do you want to learn? What do you want to know? And uh, then it was really up to me to select the area uh, or the information that I wanted to know. And to me, you see, it was the perfect way to learn. And so when I was uh, six or seven years old, I was learning about the ego, the id, and the superego, and agnosticism and atheism, and uh, the, the causes of World War II, theories about humor, and so on. And I remember all of the things that he, he talked to me about. People thought he was crazy talking to a young kid about these things, but this is what I want to know. Uh, I was also interested in science. He talked to me a lot about science. And so this was the template. This was the, the model for me, the perfect model for how learning should take place. And so later on, when I was in regular school and they had a set curriculum and we had to do what they always were telling you they thought was the right thing for you to learn, it never uh, was right with me. And in fact, if you look at the beginning of, of, that, of the book that you had there, uh, the um, No Homework and Recess All Day, um, there's a poem that I wrote at the age of 15. And I could read that to people. You go see what my attitude was about uh, education at that point when I was 15 years old. And at that point, I was in a very good uh, public school that is still considered one of the top 100 or so in the country. And I call it one of the very best of a failed system because they were still oriented toward taking the tests and doing well in them and regurgitating what the teachers taught you. And I, we always wondered where the other 95% were in the country that uh, were not so scoring Jerry, at the top of those that tests. That story for me was telling because it reminded me of the influence that a single person can have on our, you know, our own beliefs about ourselves and about our lives and learning. And it felt like that it's part of this deeper message in your work that education is not just about obtaining knowledge or learning, but it's also about learning how to be and work with others, um, which w w in many ways for me kind of took us out of even the sort of dichotomy that we're seeing right now in the education reform debate, because something like flipped learning or Khan Academy clearly wouldn't do that kind of wouldn't have that kind of influence on an individual. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, it, it does. Somebody asked me where I, uh, I uh, Mary Beth asked where I was when I was 15. I was in uh, Long Island. And um, yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense uh, to me. Uh, I see there's somebody in India, and I just want to mention that I actually have worked with the DAV schools in India, uh, helping them do democratic process around the Delhi area. But uh, I, I think that there's a huge difference between what is called innovation now and what some of the schools are trying to do and real learner-centered education. And the thing that really, I just came back from the AERA conference, American uh, uh, Association, uh, uh, Education Research Association, and also Education Writers. Uh, and that was in New Orleans. I, I came back by train yesterday, 32 hours on the train. And I was looking in their books 
<clears throat> they had all the various new publishers and their books that they have there. And I see that people throw these terms around now, learner, centered, democratic. But so let's boy, talk a little bit about they know the what core they beliefs that really inform your work. Uh, so first would be that children are natural learners and they don't need to be motivated to learn. Would you like to describe that a little? Well, you know, modern brain search, uh, brain research shows that the brain is naturally aggressive, that, <coughs> excuse me, that, um, that uh, kids are voracious learners that they want to learn uh, and nothing will practically stop them except maybe school because when they put them in a situation in which they're constantly being forced to learn things that they're not interested in, it tends to uh, reduce and even tends to extinguish the natural ability to learn. And so, yeah, you're right, except school. Um, and, and so, um, this, the human animal is pretty, pretty uh, adaptable and they can put up with this for maybe six or seven years before it has a tendency to be gone. And then, you see, there are basically two paradigms that are afoot about education. Basically two. And they really aren't compatible with each other. The paradigm that the regular traditional schools, public schools and most private schools seem to operate on is that um, children are naturally lazy and need to be forced to learn. Uh, and so if you believe that, well, then you need to have a set curriculum for them to tell them the things that they're going to need in life. You need to get them to compete with each other. You need to give them grades. You need to give them homework and so on. On the other hand, if you accept the other paradigm that children are natural learners, they basically bring their own curriculum with them. Well, then none of those other things would make any sense. In fact, they would be counterproductive. Uh, and in this case, the purpose the function of the teacher would be more as a guide and somebody who would help them find the resources to, to learn the things that they want to learn. So if that's the case, then you would have to do things in an entirely different way. And the democratic schools and the alternative schools around the world are doing this, but hardly anybody even knows that they exist. And that's one of the problems. Our our mission, my organization is the Alternative Education Resource Organization, and our mission is to make learner-centered education available to kids everywhere, to let them know, to let the parents know at least that it exists to help people start new schools. And we've helped 50, 50, start maybe 50 schools in the last few years, but that's not enough, and it doesn't touch enough kids. The country that has the most of them right now, believe it or not, is Israel. Israel has 25 schools, and they're public schools, and with uh, two, three, four hundred kids in it, you know? So, anyway, so, that's, so that's part of the story I'd like to dive into a, a little about. bit later, which is this question of, of why, why are these schools not adopted more widely? Why would Debbie Myers uh, work not? go beyond her district. I think there's sort of a, a very interesting sort of human story there. But before we go there, um, I, it, it occurred to me that although you don't say it directly in the book, but it felt to me like there are two sort of main barriers to democratic schooling. Um, the first being fear, kind of the Lord of the Flies fear that you described as that first narrative. And the second being time, that when you commit yourself to this kind of an environment, it's really a lot of work, and, and my guess is that you would say that your life sort of reflects the, the depth of that work, right? It seems like you've worked really hard. Yeah, um, I, <laughs> I actually, in the last 25 days, I, I can't believe all the different places that I've gone to, but that's just the way uh, way it happened, uh, I, I think that 
Um, I don't know what has to happen. I think it's a, it's a, the media could be one of the ways to really get these ideas across. And uh, we do what we can. We have a magazine. We have an e-newsletter. Uh, we have a good website. It's the number one website for alternative education. You can see it up there, uh, educationrevolution.org. And uh, we get a half a million hits, you know, um, unique visitors a year. And so, yeah, you know, a lot of people uh, do come to us, and yet it's not enough. It's not enough to really get these ideas across. Now, for example, in England, I suppose people may have heard of Summerhill School. But Summerhill is going to have its 90th birthday this year. And it was one of the very oldest and one of the very first real democratic schools. There were some things before it, but it's 90 years old, started by A.S. Neal, and it's being run by his daughter. And he had her when he was 63, so that, that's how that's possible. And uh, it's, it's, you know, there, Summerhill has had to fight all this time to stay in existence because they were totally learner-centered. Lessons were optional. Uh, decisions were made democratically. And in the late 90s, the government decided that they were going to make an example of Summerhill and put them out of business. And they attacked them with eight inspectors trying to find anything um, wrong that they could. And the school decided to fight back. And it's interesting, people were saying to Zoe, who is Neil's daughter, oh, you know, you could compromise. And she said, no, I'm not going to compromise on this. I'll close the school before I compromise on this. And they decided to raise the money with all their alumni and all their supporters around the world. And they hired a, a really good lawyers for defense. And they went in there, and they beat the government. And they established their right to operate under this philosophy. Now, they made, about two or three years ago, they made a really good uh, show, TV show. Uh, it's actually was a series of four shows, but I have it in the version that's, that could play in a movie theater. And they made this uh, for BBC, and it was the number one watched TV series for that week in England. So here, at least in England, people know that such a thing is possible. But I tried to get permission for them to show it here. You know, you've got this Waiting for Superman movie that had $20 million uh, backing it. I don't know, a lot of money from Gates and other people uh, for, to promote it. Uh, but it was really, <laughs> well, I can give you a critique of it if you want. I'll let you know what I, but I think that it, would, it, it really represents uh, only uh, a small aspect of the changes that need to take place. And I would love to put this uh, Summerhill drama out as something that, that gives a real picture of what a learner-centered school is, li is like, and it's really well done. So far, I have not been successful in negotiating with BBC to be able to even sell the DVD, let alone try to get it distributed in the United States. So Jerry, we just experienced a little bit of lag. I apologize. You're probably hearing me late here. So uh, what I'd like to do is to talk about what uh, democracy in education looks like. Um, and uh, again, with this idea that, that like good parenting, good teaching, that this is a harder path. So I'd like to kind of give some, uh, put some meat on the bones here and really have you describe what this kind of an environment looks like. So um, can you tell us uh, what meetings are and why they're so critical to uh, a democratic education? Okay, well, most uh, democratic schools have a democratic meeting that makes decisions about the school. Uh, Summerhill has one, uh, and uh, uh, the school that I ran for 17 years uh, had a democratic meeting. And uh, the schools that we've helped to start, some of them have and some of them haven't, because we, when we help people start schools, they don't necessarily have to be democratic schools. But for example, Manhattan Free School, Brooklyn Free School, uh, they, they have democratic meetings to make decisions. So how do they work? Well, basically, in these schools, the day-to-day -day decisions are made by a vote of everybody in the school, the staff and the students. Uh, there are regularly scheduled meetings, and there can be 
emergency or special meetings called if there's something that comes up. And in these meetings, the, the decisions uh, are made by somebody making a proposal, and there's a chairperson, you know, and they, they have discussion on it. Uh, if, when, they, when it comes to a vote, there are various ways that people do this. There's some that go by consensus, some that go by simple majority, which is what Summerhill does. And others, for example, Brooklyn Free School decided they would go by two-thirds majority. And one of the things that we established in my school is, and a lot of other schools have copied it, we call it the Iroquois democracy. You can read about it on our website uh, if you go to the essays uh, under the links. And the way that works uh, is that when we would take a vote, uh, after the vote, the minority, if there was a minority, they would be polled and they would have a right to say why they voted the way they did. Now, maybe they hadn't said it during the discussion. And then what happens after that is that anybody who wanted to could call for a revote, and there would be a revote with discussion. And this way, it wasn't a pure consensus, but it was a way to you know, give, give the minority a chance to maybe come up with a better proposal. In the 17 years that I was involved with my school, I don't think they ever made a bad decision using this process. And of course, if somebody thought a decision was bad, they could call another meeting right away. Uh, and so that would sometimes happen. I can tell you a lot of stories about uh, the kinds of decisions and the kind of creative decisions that have been made at meetings. But basically, it eliminates all fighting, generally speaking, because there's no reason to. You can just in my school, we actually had a, read, a meeting bell. You rang the meeting bell, and there was a meeting. Someone once asked me, well, what happens if someone rang the meeting bell and there was no meeting? Well, then there was an automatic meeting on you for ringing the meeting bell when there was no meeting. <laughs> but um, uh, in that meeting, you'll have a chance to say what, what, what happened from your point of view, you see. And so uh, it, it, there's almost no violence, no fights, no bullying in these schools. Uh, I mean, that's maybe hard for people to believe that haven't seen them, but if you see them, you'll understand. So again, Jerry, I apologize. There was a bit of a lag. I know you're hearing me a little bit later. So you, you quote Don Taylor Gatto, who's been on the show, in, in his sort of description that schools weren't really designed to democratize or to teach democracy or even to help people function in democracy. Um, and then you kind of go to the other end, in which we've got a variety of schools which have some amount of democratic practices in them. I, but I get the sense from the book that uh, you feel that often even schools that would claim to be democratic don't go far enough. Uh, why would that be? Well, of course, you, you have to understand that the people who are running these schools, generally speaking, didn't grow up in a democratic school. So they're learning a lot about the process even as they have started a school and are running them and so on. Even for myself, I didn't grow up in a democratic school. And even though I go around the world demonstrating it, it always amazes me. The power of it, the results just amaze me. Um, for example, I mean, I'll just give you one example. Um, I was asked to, dem asked demonstra to demonstrate democratic process at a school in New Jersey called Wellspring. Uh, and so I was driving over there. And then as I was driving over, I thought, well, wait a second. You know, I just said, sure, I would do this. And then I re remembered that the oldest student was five years old. And I thought to myself, wow, uh, I, I don't know if they're going to understand this process. I haven't ever tried to have a democratic meeting with kids that are so young. And so I said, well, I'm probably going to have to at least uh, you know, come up with the agenda for them, something like that. And uh, so I get to the school. And as I'm walking in the school, I hear a kid yelling, Mommy! And it's a two-and-a-half-year-old kid in the school. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know how this is going to work. Um, and finally comes the time to demonstrate this. And the kid's uh, sitting around a big circular table. And uh, you know, two-and-a-half-year-old, three-, four-, five-year-olds. 
And so I start explaining to them uh, how you would do a meeting that you can put on the meeting, um, you can put on the agenda things that you think are good ideas for the school or things that you think could be problems that you need to be discussed. No sooner did I say that, all the hands went up. And they put all kinds of things on the agenda. So, so much for my idea that they wouldn't understand it or that I would have to come up with an agenda for them. And a four-year-old put on the agenda that, that she thought that maybe it was a good idea not to uh, have chocolate afternoon because chocolate has a, um, a caffeine-like substance in it. Now, this is from a four-year-old. So we had a discussion about that, and the kids decided that that was a good idea not to have chocolate afternoon. And then they had another thing on the agenda that they thought, they thought that if a, if, a, if a child had a cold, that they probably shouldn't be able to go out in the cold. And that was also passed. And then what, the two-and-a-half-year-old said that he wanted, this, he wanted the school to buy him a fighting suit you know, for, their, for their costumes. And so there was discussion about that, and it was decided that they would look into what it might cost. And I remember when I came back a couple of months later, the two-and-a-half-year-old comes up to me and says, uh, yeah, we found it at Target. And so, so much for the idea that it wouldn't work with kids that young. It's just amazing what comes out of this process if you only ask, if you only come to believe that that those, every student has an opinion and that their opinions are, are important. Uh, you know, uh, for example, when we were organizing Brooklyn Free School, and uh, we'd, we were having the meetings in people's apartments. We did this for almost a year, had up to 70 people in apartments when we were having these discussions. And I told people that they should bring their students with them. And so they were bringing their students with them. And one time, I noticed that they brought three uh, children, six years old. But as soon as they got there, the three-year-olds went off to play and were not part of the discussion about the school and what it was going to be like. And so I said, you know, these, these children, they have opinions about what this school should be like. I know they have opinions. Can we at least have them come in here and tell us what they think? Well, they came in, the three of them, and as soon as they realized that we knew that they had opinions, they told us what they thought. And one of the six-year-olds said to us, you know, it's very important that the school not be too clean and not have new furniture. Because if it does, you can't run around and play and have fun and you got to worry about all this stuff. Well, I, of course, it was a very good idea, and it's something that probably only a six-year-old would have thought of. I don't think any of the adults it would have occurred to any of the, so the Jerry, adults to do it that way. So, Jerry, I can hear someone saying, well, wouldn't this lead to never-ending sort of unimportant discussions? Well, no. I mean, I don't think anyone really wanted to uh, to be in meetings all day. Uh, it's just that uh, they would come to realize that it was the best way to make decisions rather than just have teachers make decisions for them or guess what the right thing, right, the, what the right things were. And 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 in some very good schools that are not democratic, the teachers do do uh, guess the right things and the interesting things for the kids. They're very, very much in tune with them. I would say that I, I saw a school like that uh, you know, in, in, in Ukraine. I can tell you about that school because it's one of my favorites. And it, it's not a democratic school, but I did demonstrate democratic process with the students there when I was there last week or a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so uh, I think that they want to get through these meetings quickly, but they want to not sweep things under the rug either. So after a while, and of course, the most important thing that you have with, uh, in, a, in an alternative school, a democratic school like that, is the, your, your student leadership. They've been around long enough, so they know certain things just have to be done, uh, can't be ignored. And so they have the meetings, but believe me, they would get through things very efficiently 
and they would make good decisions. So they were not interminable meetings. And they also knew that when you had a new student and there were meetings about them all the time, that they kind of had to go through that because otherwise they weren't going to get through it fast enough. <coughs> so uh, no, the, the meetings, uh, they're efficient and generally Jerry, not tell too overwhelming. Go ahead. Student leaders could some some. Yeah, someone asked the question: What age were the student leaders? Uh, well, that could be any age, of course. Uh, but generally speaking, so at least somebody that's been in the school the at least two or three years. The value of a culture being built up around a school. At the same time, you talk about uh, that that there are specific characteristics of leaders who can pull this off, and that often the 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 ability for the school to survive depends on that leader still being around. So is, is there some solution to this? To, uh, can you build up a culture that's strong enough to survive uh, the adult leadership moving on and new adults coming in? Uh, yeah, yes, you can. I mean, I know of some schools. I know some schools that were not uh, were a little bit dysfunctional in their early years, but once there were students who had been in the school for two or three years, they tended to kind of take over and stabilize things. So that that absolutely does happen and can happen. Okay. Well, let's. I wanted to, uh, one of the things you didn't mention that I think happens in these schools, or at least in the schools that you feel your own schools or that are, are fully democratic, is the students don't necessarily have to go to class. What, what, how do people respond to that, and what's the fear? Well, I guess both the students uh, how does parents respond and the outsiders looking at democratic schooling. Well, of course, people, of course, people who haven't experienced that. Uh, they they panic a little bit uh, because uh, they think, uh, wow, you know, then they might just decide to do nothing. Uh, but that's that doesn't happen. I mean, it does happen with kids that have been in uh, other uh, compulsory schools or schools in which class attendance was compulsory and they were forced to learn things that they weren't interested. In those cases, there's going to be a period of decompression. There's going to be a, a fairly, sometimes fairly lengthy period in which their main activity is to not go to things because they uh, they have to take out the anger that they have of being forced to learn things or do things that they weren't interested in. But if you look at students that have always been in this kind of school or ones that have been for a while, uh, that's really <laughs> not an issue. Uh, and it's just amazing the kinds of things that they do come up with. I would say, by the way, that this approach has a lot to do with homeschooling and particularly the aspect of homeschooling that's called unschooling. I think the philosophies are very similar and they're built on the idea that children are natural learners. The most important thing that the adults have to be able to do is help them find resources and know really well how to listen to them. And the listening may have to take place in something that's beyond just words to kind of get a sense of what that student so really wants to do or the chat what they're, the minutes, direction that they're trying to go in. There's a question in the chat, I mean, the Q&A in about 10 minutes, but there's a question in the chat that I think is worth addressing now because you do address it in the book. And Terry asks about the demographics of the students in these schools, in the alternative schools, and there seems to be an assumption in the follow-up chat that these would typically be white, well-off students with rare exceptions. Yeah. Well, Yeah, well, I think that, that uh, there have been a couple of different directions that these schools have taken. Of course, there are the, the freedom schools, which were mostly black, uh, and, and, and then there are the free schools, which tended to be more white, but they were mixed. Um, and I think that, for example, uh, one of the problems is, and it's a serious problem, that if you want to be able to get something that any kid could go to, theoretically, it would be nice to be able to do it with public money. Uh, but there are very few charter schools, for example, that have tried to do this uh, and become democratic that have survived. Uh, 
there are some, but generally speaking, it is so foreign to the people in their community that eventually somebody manages to get the power to shut it down. Uh, and uh, for example, there was a really terrific school based on Sudbury Valley School uh, that was going in out in Oregon. And it ran for 10 years. The parents loved it. The kids loved it. But people in the local community were suspicious of it. They didn't understand it. And they went out of their way to elect four board members, which gave them a majority, so that they could immediately close the school down. And even though the school fought for a year, uh, it was closed down. And so it's hard to do it as a public school. But you know that I know some people who are still trying to do that because they don't want to have this elitist uh, attitude. Now, the approach that I took with my school and have been taking with a lot of the other schools that I've been helping to start is to do it as an independent school, but with a sliding scale uh, tuition and a lot of fundraising. So, example, so for example, in my school, um, most of the students were low income, many of them on welfare. But in you know, Manhattan Preschool, Brooklyn Preschool, um, most of the students are minority. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a real mix, though, of white and black and Hispanic and Asian and Indian and so on. And so um, uh, that varies from place to place. You know, schools like Albany Preschool, Manhattan, Brooklyn, they are that way. Others tend to be, you know, it depends on the, uh, partly the financial structure of them. But in terms of whether this idea works with a variety, kids from a variety of backgrounds, um, I'll tell you about one thing that's really was quite amazing to me. And that is that um, back in 2000, we, every year we have an independent uh, International Democratic Edu uh, Education Conference, IDEC. And that year we had it in Japan. And to that conference came a woman by the name of Rita Panikar. And she came from India. Uh, she had started a program called Butterflies. It was for homeless working children in New Delhi. And she brought a student with him who lived in the train station. He was a homeless kid. But he was also a union organizer, organizing student unions to make sure that children would get paid if they worked. And I, <coughs> I met him, and <coughs> excuse me, and I was, I was so impressed with him that we stayed in touch a little bit afterwards through the through the the uh, computer of the or place where where he was uh, going to school called Butterflies. The program is called Butterflies, and I determined that if I ever got there, I was going to visit this place. And I finally did get get a chance to do that. And I have a documentary on it, um, which I think you can find on our website. In fact. You can find the other one about the, the preschool one also on our website uh, under the free videos. And so I got, I got there and I interviewed these students. We had a conference, uh, one of the IDEX uh, in 2004 was in India, in Bhubaneswar. And so on the way, I went to Delhi and I was, went there on my way and on my way back. And I talked to the students and they were simply amazing. They were ambitious. They were confident. Uh, they uh, they uh, ran the place democratically. Uh, they had their own bank, for example, besides their own uh, uh, unions, and were very articulate about what they were doing and what their plans were. So uh, this is one reason why when I saw uh, that uh, Academy Award winner, uh, what was the name of it? Um, that took place in India, um, I I couldn't uh, I couldn't believe it because they were a lot of the places that I had actually visited in India were places where that was shot. So there's a good example of uh, of people saying to me, well, what happens if really poor kids you know get to do this? My students actually were pretty poor. They were they were low income, and people would come in and visit my school and say, and they talk to the kids. Sometimes they would think some of the older students were teachers. And they would say to me, well, sure, it works with these kids. They're middle class. And I said, guess what? They're not. They only sound middle class. 
and to get and why is that? That's because with the particularly with the democratic meetings, the, the vocabularies and we did use standardized testing just for ourselves. The vocabularies improved at three times as fast as the uh, regular population to the point where it just wasn't even worth testing anymore because they were all very high. Uh, and that's okay, so what happens. Uh, we're going to switch to Q and A here. Uh, there's lots more to talk about, but uh, John actually asked a question that was going to be my next question. So we'll use that as a chance to segue to Q and A. He t he's asking about college entry exams and how do these students do on SATs. And at one point in time, there was this eight-year study that you mentioned in the book. Do we currently have any kind of a study that shows now any way of measuring the outcome? Right that uh, would help reinforce an understanding in people that this is a positive? Well, um, the, the eight-year study was the most comprehensive study that was ever done on learner-centered education. It was took place in the 30s because there were uh, all these progressive schools that had, had blossomed and they didn't give grades and the colleges wanted to find out how those students did and so they measured them over an eight year period of time. They found out that they did better in school, they did better in college, they did better in their lives afterwards and at that point by 1940 everyone was ready to turn to that kind of education but that's when we got involved with the Second World War and teachers unions had a tendency to hold things in place. And so the changes never happened. Now, I was just at the um, uh, Educational Research uh, Association meeting in New Orleans. And <laughs> at that meeting, uh, we talked about that very thing. You know, has there been anything that's really taken place since the eight-year study that really measures this? And there isn't. There are a lot of little things, little studies that have, have taken place here and there. But nothing as comprehensive as that. And one of the reasons, I guess, is because the schools don't really have the money to finance something like that. I think another thing is that people who are involved with it see the changes in front of their nose and they really just don't need anything else. Now, we did do measurements ourselves of our students. And when I gave them the standardized test, there was their option whether they wanted to, um, to, to see the results of it. They were never used on any kind of transcript. This was just for ourselves. And they could ask for the test if they wanted them to be given at some point. Uh, the average student improved at two and a half times the national rate. So, you know, this, uh, but the, the you know, really, I don't know of any good research. There's a book uh, that just came out that we sell um, in our in our online bookstore, uh, which talks about the results of the graduates uh, and the former students of Jefferson County Open School, and it's really well done. It is quite thorough, and it talks about some of the great things that have happened, and I and, and it has some statistical analysis. And there's also a book of the graduates of Sudbury Valley School. But uh, I think that uh, this hasn't been a really good comprehensive study. And I think, it's, I think it's something that would be very, very useful. But that said, I want to say something else. And other people down in, in uh, New Orleans said the similar things. To some extent, one of the reasons why it's hard for us to have an impact on the traditional system is because that system is more akin to a religion. Uh, it's got its own, uh, uh, you know, ceremonies and uh, things that people think you have to do. And to some extent, well, it's, you know, they say, well, I did it. It's good enough for me. It's good enough for you. Uh, it isn't really, uh, it, I think it's never been proven statistically that that system is any better than any other one or <laughs> certainly better than a learner-centered approach. It's, if anything, any statistics prove that it's not. They have statistics about homeschoolers, for example, and what they've discovered is that when homeschoolers take these standardized tests, which they're sometimes mandated to do, they come out in something like the 86th percentile. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Brian Ray who's, who's shown some of that research. So, but as far as a comprehensive testing or research, I don't it does know of anything seem that you've already kind of that I could really uh, point to. Hinted at the degree to which 
once someone gets solidified in the current system, how hard it is and how long it can take to become comfortable with the democratic processes. So it feels like this is a self-perpetuating system. If you go through it, it's very hard to imagine that, that giving that kind of freedom wouldn't just result in Lord of the Flies, but would actually be productive. Well, you know, you keep talking about Lord of the Flies, and, and, and that book by William Golding actually came out when I was uh, interning, when I was in college, at a school called Lewis Wadham School in upstate New York, which was based directly on Summerhill. And I remember some of the students read that book, and they said, they said well, of course, that's how those students are going to react. They, they, they come from uh, posh English boarding schools for, for the upper class. Uh, you know, but it never would happen with our school. Uh, and uh, I think that that makes sense to me. Uh, and I'll give you one little example. I was visiting a school in Florida, Tallahassee, called Grassroots Free School once. And I went, on one of the days I went there, uh, I'd, I'd been there for a few days, but one day all the teachers had the flu. And so they didn't come into school. And what was interesting is nothing changed. They ran all the usual kinds of things that they did. They, they organized games. They had various uh, classes and so on. It just, you know, it, it almost didn't, they almost didn't notice that the teachers weren't there. So that is what happens in a non-authoritarian structure that's based on the interest of the students. And on the other hand, when you've got an authoritarian So John uh, system, has asked a couple of questions well, then you get I think actually go together here. First, he asks how many students, he's confused about the basics, what's the class size, ages and classes, who pays the teachers, are the salaries consistent with the regular schools? And then he says, as a parent, I can't imagine risking my kid unless I had direct knowledge that I truly trusted the sources, a big risk to depart from the norm. It feels like that first set of questions are kind of the traditional questions we would ask. And so if we don't have easy answers to them, it feels like we're making a radical departure. Uh, am I reading that correctly, do you think? If people can't get kind of the regular answers, do they feel like that this is a risk? Well, I think people think something's a risk that they haven't experienced. To me, the biggest risk that people are taking, and it's a very foolhardy and dangerous risk, is putting their students in the regular system. They're putting their students in a regular system that basically has been proven not to work. Uh, and it certainly doesn't work anywhere near as well as things like homeschooling or democratic schools or by any measure that, that people have done. Uh, but I, I think that, that it would be probably best for people to visit some local schools like that and talk to the students before they could make a judgment about it. I think that would be all that they would really need. Um, I'm thinking of a, of, a, of, a, of a family that I was here on Long Island, and they, there was no school like that on Long Island. And so they, they were visiting a couple of schools I suggested, you know, Brooklyn Preschool, Manhattan Preschool. And in both cases, uh, the students said, I don't care how long it takes to get here, how many trains and subways I have to take, this is where I want to go. And the kids have gone to those schools, and they absolutely, you know, love going to them. And the parents couldn't be happier. The, the kids, they had serious problems before. Those problems disappeared. Um, so I don't know. I can try to answer some of the other questions, because it varies tremendously. But let's just take Brooklyn Free School. It's able to pay its teachers a decent salary, even though they have the sliding scale, scale tuition. I'm on the board, and I found out that uh, um, all of the uh, all the students in school, 20% actually only 20% are paying the full tuition, 30% are paying less than 10%, and 20% uh, are paying nothing. But it's in, still enough for the teachers to get paid a reasonable amount, uh, something comparable to New York City uh, teacher okay, salaries so, uh, on the low side. And they're really happy to be the there. Icon with a hand and the green up arrow, or to put it in the chat. I'll try and make sure I'm capturing those. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit, if we could, about uh, sort of the new reforms and uh, what might even be called sort of new progressive reforms. So we have groups like TED 
and South by Southwest and Gates Foundation and many others who are uh, many of them are coming in and saying, you know, we're now going to change schooling, but don't seem in any way to bridge to the decades, even centuries-long sort of tradition of uh, pedagogical work that groups like yours have done. So why isn't there a better bridge there? Is this just sort of a natural human thing that happens that people don't, you know, don't look outward? Or, or is there, do we need to find a way to bridge these new reform efforts with groups like yours or the Coalition for Essential Schools or Big Picture Schools that, that have grappled with these issues already for a long time? If I, if I knew the answer to that, then we would be more successful than we are, because that is my job, is to try to, to unite people to have all of the different types of alternatives getting together uh, and and really trying to change the whole system so that at least these choices are available uh, to all you know children and to all families. Um, there is a split, as you've indicated, between a couple of the different types of reformers. There, uh, I'll see if I can summarize where the differences are, and I keep on trying to find common ground for these. For example, the people who uh, made Waiting for Superman are saying, well, yes, there's a problem in the system. Okay, we agree with that. Um, then they say, well, one of the answers is charter schools. And I would say, well, there could be. depends on how they do them. The guy who started the first charter school, Joe Nathan, I don't know how happy he is with all the charters that are there now, but his original idea was that they were supposed to be established so that they could use public money, but to get away from all the red tape and all the rigmarole that people have to go to and do something innovative. And yet, what's happened, uh, some would say predictably, is that those charter schools are now subject to these standardized tests, and some of them do the teaching to the test that they do in other schools and uh, are really not any much different because of that. And uh, they accept the idea of the No Child Left Behind uh, standardization, which I am totally against, and which most of the alternative educators that I'm involved with are totally against. Um, the uh, the people, the Waiting for Superman people, believe that there's a problem with teachers and uh, tenure, and uh, I think that uh, you know the idea that uh, that an incompetent teacher could wind up you know getting tenure and then being able to stay forever, so they're against that, but. Um, you, you know, one of the things, we never had to worry about it that at my school, uh, and one of the reasons was that the students didn't have to go to anybody's class. If you have an incompetent teacher, all the kids could choose not to go. Then it was up to that teacher to change and become a good teacher or find out what they were lacking um, or leave. And sometimes they left, but more often they became good teachers. Just think how sad it is that most regular almost all regular teachers never get that kind of feedback. So they have a captive audience and they could go for decades and decades being an incompetent teacher and not even know it. So anyway, the, I try to find common ground between these groups and I think there is so common ground, now. but I think um, we have to work on it. You've got many more years in this than I do, but I, I'm not sure that there really is the common ground that you're looking for because I'm my sense, at least currently, is that these represent two very different narratives, um, and that they are, that in recognizing that they're different narratives, I think there's value, but they are very different narratives around um, how you treat children and what, and what teaching and learning are about. Um, so um, John asked another question I think plays well into your, at least revisiting the website. He wanted to know if you could point out a school near him in Eugene, Oregon. Am I right in thinking that there actually is a list somewhere of schools? Um, I didn't look at it myself, but I remember you, I think you referenced it somewhere. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we ha if you go to our website, you can go to our list of member schools. And uh, that, that will give you an idea of what good schools could be around you. There used to be one in Eugene. 
uh, or in Williams nearby, but it closed down. And I keep on, it doesn't make any sense to me that there hasn't been a good one established in Eugene, but I, I talk to people all the time who say they're going to start a new alternative school in Eugene, um, but and maybe there's something there, but if there is, I don't know that they're that they've communicated to us yet. So if you go to educationrevolution.org, and then you go to our um, list of member schools, you can see what there is. We also have something that you can go to, which is a database of, uh, that goes beyond that and has um, almost all a wider variety, including a lot of public alternatives. You might find something on that one. You'll see you'll see a link to it, uh, School Finder. Uh, but uh, um, I don't actually know if there is anything yet in Eugene. It may be something that you will have to start. If you want to start it, we do have uh, have programs for people who want to start new alternatives. One of the ways we often will do that someplace is to have people start by setting up a homeschool resource center, which they could do almost anywhere. So again, Jerry, I apologize for the delay. I think you're hearing this a little after you finished. Um, uh, Dewey came up in the chat, and even though Dewey wrote a very famous book with the word democracy in the title, you don't feel like he was really creating a full democratic um, ideal, do you? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. When people use the word democracy these days, they talk about getting children ready to participate in a democracy, but they don't really usually talk about them actually participating in a democracy and learning about doing that by being in one, unless they're actually democratic schools. Uh, a lot of the, the, uh, the, well, you know, on the other hand, if you take Maria Montessori, um, I've helped some Montessori schools become democratic. Uh, we, we did this with a school in, in South Africa and with a couple in, in uh, India. And uh, I went to a conference uh, of, of the, uh, the Montessori Foundation in Florida and actually did a presentation there and did some demonstrations with some schools there. So there's nothing antithetical, for example, to Montessori education and democratic education. Uh, but I think that they okay, throw the word around a couple of without really left, and we had a couple quite of understanding come up. One was about deep be. learning and Kieran Egan, and, and he is coming on the show again to talk about his new book, Learning in Depth, so that should be interesting. We haven't scheduled a date yet, but it'll be sometime this summer. Um, uh, John asked if you had read the New York Times cover story about the South Bronx Middle School, and if so, did you want to comment on it? Well, you've been traveling, so. <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't know um, what that is. Uh, Martin asked Isn't that why a competent administrator, lead teacher, mentor, experienced educator, uh, is for? Should they be held to the same accountability as the pedagogues they're supervising? Why aren't we looking at how they understand where they have been? So I'm not sure I fully understand the question, Martin. Jerry, did you understand that enough to respond? Well, I think I already have. You know, I, I don't mind. I didn't mind having somebody come into the school who was not competent at first, as long as nobody was forced to go to their class. Uh, so I think that's really a bigger issue uh, than than the idea of whether or not it's you might have an incompetent teacher in your school. In the chat as well. Okay, so uh, Jerry, that, this has been a terrific hour. Uh, the book I read was No Homework and Recess All Day. Uh, I think I ended up. Um, buying a used copy, but my guess is you have them for new on your website. And then I read, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, of course, we have uh, about 125 books that we've picked out that are uh, in our uh, website, on our, in our online store. 
and go, you can just go to educationrevolution.org. We have videos for sale too, of course, DVDs, but you can see a lot of free videos on the site too. Uh, and you can buy that book and you can buy our latest book, which is Turning Points, uh, which is an incredible book, which has basically essays from 35 visionaries in education. Uh, and we asked them what they what their education was, what they did about it, uh, what their epiphany was, and what they're doing now. And so hopefully, and, and if anybody wants to contact us directly, we have an 800 number, 800-769-4171. Uh, you can write to me from the, uh, the site. You can write to me from educationrevolution.org. Jerry, thanks so much. I also put and up I'd the link in the page for the they conference. Uh, which I'm actually going to, is it, is, can you still register for the conference? This is August in Portland, Oregon. Oh, absolutely. Uh, our, our people are notorious for registering late, so. Terrific. Well, it, uh, uh, we I'm really glad to make the connection with you. And I, at this time of year, we probably had uh, about further 100. conversation. Many of the people are in the book uh, we have interviewed on the show, uh, and many names I don't know, so I'm anxious to learn more about them. Thank you so much for taking the time after a long trip, and especially long train ride. Really appreciate your coming, and I'm clapping for you now. Thanks so much, okay, Jerry. Well, Thanks nice everybody being for coming. People should feel Again, free to contact week, us if they want any more information. We have book, The Genius on All of Us. This is a book I'm really liking. Huge implications for how we think about um, uh, students and teaching and learning. And then on the 21st, a little bit of a broader picture. Uh, Barry Schwartz on this book, The Paradox of Choice. Um, we've been talking with Jerry Mintz. Uh, have a terrific evening, everybody. I hope you'll join us again. Thanks again, Jerry, and have a good night.